episode 26 of the DNC podcast, Friday edition. Dustin, how is this Friday treating you? Doing great, man. I'm excited to talk about sports today. It feels like it's been forever. Obviously, we had the interview Monday, and Steve was an absolute pleasure to have on the show. Steve, if yes. you're listening to this, thank you so much. It's so many awesome stories. But with that being said, we didn't talk about sports Monday, so we've got so much to talk about today. So much has happened specifically in basketball. My boy, Ben Simmons out for the year at least if not possibly the start of next season so that's interesting what's your what's your takeaway on that did you actually have the 76ers like as a contender for me I never thought they really had a chance so for this for me obviously it means they probably won't make the Eastern Conference Finals but for me they weren't a team that I saw actually being a viable option for a championship run what would your what's your takeaway with all this stuff going on with them my takeaway is that really the same. I, I, obviously, it's a huge blow for Philadelphia. I personally, and I, we talked about this on a few pods back, but I don't really see Ben Simmons in the same way that maybe most people do. I think he's a really, really talented player, but he's very one-dimensional to me. So he reminds me, honestly, a little bit of Giannis, not as physically imposing, but he's great in transition. He can get to the rim really at ease, but he has no jump shot. And so if you can eliminate that aspect of his game, he's pretty much irrelevant. And so I know that is maybe a surprise to most people and it's not a hot take at all. I, I'm not a hater of Ben Simmons. I actually think that he's he's a great player for what he is and what he does and still has a lot of time to develop that jumper and other aspects of his game. So I'm not trying to come down too harsh on him. And there was a stretch, I believe it was two seasons back when Ben Simmons was out and Joel Embiid went on this run and was actually in the MVP conversation and kind of carried the team. So it could potentially be a benefit for Philadelphia, even as crazy as that might sound. But even with Ben Simmons, they're obviously a way different offense and a way different team than if they're just if they just have Joel Embiid and Al Horford and Tobias Harris, who are all nice pieces, but he, ben Simmons is a guy you do have to worry about, though. So you do have to game plan as a coach. So when you eliminate that piece off the floor, you don't you don't have to worry. So I don't see Philadelphia, even with Ben Simmons, making a run to the Eastern Conference Finals and come, or even coming out of the East and representing them in the finals. I thought they would probably get to the second round and lose there. There's a lot of talent on the roster and on paper. I think a lot of people would look at this team as a potential contender. But all season, and Tobias Harris even came out and said this before the bubble, that they really weren't on the same page. They lacked a lot of chemistry, and that really does matter, especially in the game of basketball. You look at a team like Toronto, who doesn't have a superstar on that roster, but they're probably going to come out of the East. I, I really feel strongly about them. And so the, to their point, being more of a well-rounded team, being highly effective on the defensive end, and being effective that way and being dominant not through just one player, but through a multitude of players is really important when you don't have a superstar and where you have Philadelphia, who's got Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons, and you've still not been able to produce the way that you should be producing is worrisome for me. So either way, I didn't see them getting to the finals, even with Ben Simmons, but obviously it's still a pretty big blow for them. No, for sure. I think their issue was the offseason when your big signing is Al Horford, when you already have a clog up front because you have Embiid, you have Simmons who now has moved to the power forward position officially. You have Tobias Harris who, in my opinion, is more of a modern day four than a three because yeah. he's not quite as athletic as most of the wing players in the league. To me, this offseason is huge. You have to go out there and sign a guy like Joe Harris 
who can come in. He can be a three-point shooter. He's been on. He's done really well for Brooklyn the past three or four years. He's averaging 14 points a game. The biggest thing is his three-point percentage. So he's 41% from three this year, 47 last year, 41 the year before. And then if you can add another guy like maybe an Austin Rivers or an A.V. Bradley or even a Fred Van Fleet if he leaves Toronto because he'll be a free agent and he may want to get paid. And you can have two other shooters on the roster and then Ben can still run in transition. You can still do some of the, the things through him in the low post and have him dish out. This offseason for them is really big. It, it It's astounding to me how bad so many general managers are in sports. Like I just look at it from the outside in and this isn't even like me being arrogant. I feel like I could be a better GM than half of the GMs in basketball. I'm like, what are you doing? Like, no, there's no doubt. Make sense. Al Horford's a somewhat big name. He was good in Atlanta. He had a, you know, a nice little run in Boston. But why are you paying that guy $27 million a year when you gave Avery Badley, Austin Rivers, and Joe Harris for 27 for all three of them? And now you can go eight-man deep. You have multiple guys who can hit a three-pointer. It's It just blows my mind how bad so many GMs are. And it's like the only reason the team's relevant is because they're so bad they have first, second, third, fourth, fifth overall picks, and that's how they got Simmons and Embiid. Yeah, no, 100%. And a lot of people in the media have talked about this Philadelphia roster, and specifically Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons being really not a good fit for each other because Ben Simmons is best in transition, and Joel Embiid is not a transition player. So I think a lot of people have thought they're going to part ways with one or two, one of the guys, right? So it's either going to be Embiid or Simmons. I know that you've lobbied for keeping Ben Simmons and I've lobbied for keeping Joel Embiid. And I think you make a valid point on your end of the argument. And and I think I, I have a pretty valid argument on my end. However, like I said, I think that they potentially could work better without Ben Simmons. And, but I don't feel like it changes their chances of getting to the finals. So we're going to get into the pick of the day. And I've actually been really stoked about this one because I've wanted to talk about it for quite some time because I feel like a lot of the media has said that this isn't that big a deal and they've tried to play it down or make excuses for this franchise. And what I'm referring to is what happened back in April when the Green Bay Packers traded up into the first round to draft Jordan Love. When you have one of the all-time greats under center and Aaron Rodgers still has at least another four to five years of prime football. And you've never drafted a receiver in the first round. And this could have been the first time you did that. There, This was a deep wide receiver draft for the first round. And you decide to draft Jordan Love, who is not a surefire prospect. He has a lot of potential, but we Again, potential could always end up just being potential. There's a lot of guys that have come it's in this league. It's amazing the impact that Patrick Mahomes is having three years into the league on like franchise-altering decisions. When you look at a team like the Packers, they don't they draft him if Patrick Mahomes isn't having this They success. don't. And it's crazy. It's not like you're a team like the Bears where you have Mitchell Trubisky where maybe it would make sense to, to take Jordan Love because right. what happened, you missed on Mahomes. Like you could have had Mahomes, you could have had Watson, and you take Trubisky from North Carolina. Like it's not basketball, it's football. What are you doing? <laughs> like you're taking a, you're trading up another first-round pick with the Niners to go from two to three to take Trubisky. Like you blew that. So for the Bears, it makes sense. But for the Packers, you have Aaron Rodgers. And even for me, like – I'm not a huge Aaron Rodgers guy just because I'm a huge Brady guy and they always compare the two. And But there's certain things about Rodgers that you just, you can't not understand. Arm talent, top five all time. His ability to make plays in the pocket was really kind of before his time. Like he was not like the mobile quarterback, but how like we, how I want a mobile quarterback when I think of a mobile 
quarterback, not a dual threat quarterback, but a guy that can make moves in the pocket, buy time for his teammates. He's always done that. You look at Drew Brees and Brady playing into their 40s. He has six years left. What are you doing? No, so this is where this is one of those things where I just don't understand it. And I'm not a GM and I'm not trying to act as though I could be, although I feel like in some cases I probably could do a pretty decent job. I'm not trying to be arrogant like you were saying earlier, but via the ringers, Kyle Brandt, Aaron Rodgers said, quote, just look at the facts. They traded up. They drafted Jordan Love. Obviously they like him. They want to play him. To which Matt LaFleur, head coach of the Green Bay Packers said, quote, Aaron's our quarterback and I see him here for a really long time. Oh, do you? So why did you trade up into the first round of draft a quarterback if you see him here for a long time? Do you think time? that was more LaFleur or do you think that was more the GM or probably 50-50? It's LaFleur saying what needs to be said so that Aaron, there's no rift between him and Aaron because obviously Jordan Love's not going to be the quarterback this year. So I think the crazy thing for me is, yeah, the Packers are really last year and I get that we're giving Matt a whole bunch of credit as the scheme was different and Aaron Jones had a career year and it's really, really popular right now to be on this young coach train where you look at a guy like Sean McVay, right? And the success he had, but minus Jared Goff, like that roster was stacked. Like the reality is regardless of scheme, Aaron Rodgers helped you guys go 13 and three, because even if you're running the ball, you're not going to load the box. And so we can say, Hey, Matt LaFleur, this Matt LaFleur, that like, the Kansas City Chiefs ran the same offense with Alex Smith and Patrick Mahomes. It was a little different when Mahomes was back there because of the arm talent. That's what you have with, with Rodgers. If you put Love in that system next year, Love's never done it, and you're not going to be able to get Aaron Jones those open runs through the tackles. And so the fact that Rodgers is getting bashed because of the success to me is absolutely ludicrous. Yeah, and I don't want to put all the blame on Matt LaFleur because we've seen this in the past where you have guys like Hugh Jackson who wanted to draft Carson Wentz, who also wanted to draft Deshaun Watson, and the front office decided to pass. So this might not be on LaFleur's shoulders, but you are the head coach. So you have some responsibility in this manner or in this matter. I look at this situation with Matt LaFleur and Aaron Rodgers, and I go, you took the Green Bay job because Aaron Rodgers was your quarterback. You don't take that job unless Aaron Rodgers is under center. So ultimately, I just feel like this organization has dropped the ball massively. I understand thinking towards the future, thinking about who's going to supersede him, but I but it's too soon. And Jordan Love, like I said, I think you said something absolutely perfect, which is the Patrick Mahomes effect has really, truly impacted the thought processes of GMs because without him, there's no way Jordan Love goes in the first round. And I like that there's a lot of potential there, but you do that if you're Jacksonville. You do that if you're Tennessee. You do that if you're Cleveland, right? You have to make massive reaches for guys and hope they pan out because you're not going to typically get to acquire somebody in free agency. Green Bay doesn't have that issue. So I really don't understand this pick. I never will. I don't I don't think there's an argument that can support it on the other side of it. I just I don't care if you say that quarterbacks are currency. It doesn't matter. If Aaron Rodgers was 40, then it's a different conversation. Then I'm going, okay, I understand it. Aaron Rodgers is what, 36? So you're gonna get at least another four years out of him of prime football, and you have this window to win a Super Bowl. 
You were in the NFC Championship game last year. Yeah, you got dominated by the San Francisco 49ers, but a lot of teams got beat pretty bad by San Francisco. They're a great team. That wasn't on Aaron Rodgers' shoulders. So rather than going, hey, we got to the NFC Championship game, we're a game away from the Super Bowl, let's add more pieces around him to give us a better shot at beating a team like San Francisco. No, we're going to draft Jordan Love out of Utah State who had one good season in college at a small school. And because he can throw the ball 80 yards in the air, you trade up to get him. I just don't understand it. To me, this is a challenge you have as an athlete when you're really, really good at elevating people around you. I mean, we saw it with LeBron in Cleveland for, what, 10 years? We've seen it with Tom Brady in New England, at least offensively. Now, yes, he's had talent around him, but some of it was luck. Like, the short stint with Hernandez, RIP, um, and Rob Gronkowski, (laughs) nobody knew. I had to do a little shout-out right there. Uh, Nobody knew who, like, that Gronk was going to be Gronk. Like, Arguably the best tight end in the history of football. No one knew that. Like, you didn't know that coming out of Arizona. Or it would have been a first-round pick, right? They make the trade for Randy Moss. But besides that, it's like, I love Julian Edelman, but he played quarterback at Appalachian State, I think. Like, or a small, or Kent State, right? Kent State, yeah. So, yeah, played quarterback at a small school. Danny Amendola was a tweener who was on the Rams who never did anything until he came to New England and then kind of put together. But you're not getting him prime weapons. You got him Randy Moss for a season and a half. It was a rental, right? So... But they were so good at making people better and still finding a way to win that it almost hurts them that they're so good. And it's just like we love to see Aaron Rodgers have a Hopkins. Like the fact that Murray has his coach and GM trade for DeAndre Hopkins' second season, like that's a luxury. How does he get someone to do that for him? But Rodgers can't even be like, yo, can you draft me CeeDee Lamb? Like give me something. It's absurd. But I'm going to go over to my pick of the day. So my pick of today and I'm not even a huge Melo supporter, but in my lifetime, like Melo's one of the most dominant players I think I've ever seen, at least scoring the basketball. Like he's a Kevin Durant before Kevin Durant. It's not popular now because we pulled Durant on this pedestal that he's now all of a sudden, because he won a few chips with the Warriors, he's a top you know five player all time. But I think there's a pretty strong case you could make that if you put Prime Melo with Stephen Curry, he may win a chip or two. So... Damian Lillard came out over the weekend and said, yo, like Melo's 100% a Hall of, Hall of Famer. And the fact that this is even up for debate to me is absolutely mind-blowing. Like, I don't, I don't know why now all of a sudden there's all this negative press around Carmelo Anthony. You know, the Rockets basically tried to blackball him out of the league two or three years ago just because he didn't fit in their system. But he wasn't a bad guy. It was more like, hey, this is how I've always played. And it seemed like they almost wanted him to come there and score. And there wasn't like really a, a right fit for him, but it wasn't really Melo being a bad guy. But when you look at his resume, it speaks for itself. 10-time All-Star, three-time Olympic gold medalist, championship at Syracuse, McDonald's All-American. And the big thing about the Basketball Hall of Fame that differs from the NFL Hall of Fame is it looks at your basketball career as a whole. So what you did in high school, what you've done overseas, internationally, the guy was dominant. I mean, how many players averaged 20 points a game for 14 straight seasons? I mean, the reality is Paul Pierce is going to make the Hall of Fame because he wanted chip in Boston. So you can't just look at the chip thing. Another really interesting stat I found was since 1960, every player that's led the league in scoring one season has made the Hall of Fame. The only player who hasn't yet is the late great Kobe Bryant, but obviously he's going to make it probably this year or next year once he's eligible. Carmelo also currently ranks 18th all-time on the scoring list. He plays one or two more seasons. He may even be top 10 all-time. And people are saying, I'm not sure if he's a Hall of Famer. I don't get the hate, man. 
I, I, it makes absolutely no sense to me. Yeah. It's because so many people value winning, I believe, right? Like more than anything, they, they value in a team sport, winning championships above all. And so it's like, I look at certain players and I go, do, is Dan Marino lesser of a quarterback because he didn't win a Super Bowl? Like, do we think Trent Dilfer or Joe Flacco is a better quarterback than Dan Marino? Absolutely not. So when we, I think the argument with Melo is that number one, or his ability to score and play isolation ball is probably top 10 all time. But most people don't like that because it comes across as very selfish. But the reality of it is, is that he did it because he could and nobody could stop him. And he's, it's really sad that people spend more time trying to find holes in people's game rather than just respecting the greatness and appreciating the greatness of somebody's talent. And it's, we, we've, we hear this every single day about LeBron, right? It's like everybody tries to find some hole in his game to talk about because he's so elite. It's the same thing with Melo. Sure. Does he have flaws in his game? Absolutely. Am I trying to say that he's LeBron? No, but his prime years in the NBA, he's a top five player and it wasn't even a question. So I really feel like the Rockets did him dirty and they cost him a year and a half in the NBA because of that. And I'm glad he got another chance because he deserved it. I mean, Portland's a perfect fit for him because he didn't have to be the face of the franchise and he never would be, of course, at his age. But you have guys like Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum, two young guards who are the face of their franchise. So they're great offensive talent. So he wasn't going to have to carry any type of an offensive uh, burden. And and the thing is, is that he his role in Portland is perfect for him. Like he's able to do the things that he does best. And we've seen him in the bubble. He's had a really, really good start to or restart to the season. And he's a first ballot Hall of Famer. There's no question. There should never be a question about that. And I feel like when you look at Melo's career, the reason why people think that he doesn't deserve to necessarily be in conversations as one of the elite, all-time elite offensive talents is because his time in the NBA with the with the Nuggets, with the Knicks, and then obviously he had a short stint with the Rockets, he didn't ever really win. And so a lot of people think, well, his style of game is not conducive to winning. And in a lot of ways, I think you can make a valid argument for that. However, there's a lot of guys' style that doesn't work in terms of correlation to wins. So a guy like Russell Westbrook, who I think also gets disrespected in a lot of conversations, but he has holes in his game too. But because he hasn't won, people disrespect him. Same thing with his his teammate, James Harden. It's the exact same. People look at James Harden in a in an off light because he hasn't won anything. They're like, oh, well, he's just this guy that draws fouls and drops 40. And you know he's really good, but the guy can't win. So Look, there's more to winning than just your individual talent. Because if you remove Melo from either the Nuggets teams, if you remove Melo from those Knicks teams, I mean, that was the first time in probably 10 years that the Knicks were actually relevant in basketball. Like they were a solid team. They weren't great. They were never going to win a title, but they were solid. It was because of Melo. So, and then when you look at, if you look at the current situation in Portland, because he's not having to be the number one go-to guy, he's able to just focus on the things he does best. He doesn't have to worry about taking on and putting the team on his shoulders and carrying them night in and night out. And that's perfect for him. But I'll never understand the hate. I just won't because I appreciate his craft. I appreciate his greatness. And of course, there's things that I go, hey, these are some things that bother me about his game. However, we can do that with everybody. And Mel is just really all time.
So the NBA seeding games have been incredibly interesting thus far. We're getting really close to the NBA playoffs. It starts in nine days. And there's a lot of, if you look deeply into it, there's a lot of storylines that have come out of these four seeding games. I know that we're into five today. However, I think when we look at the West and the East, there's there's stuff that really stands out in the positive and stuff that really stands out in the negative. We're going to start with the Western Conference. And a team that I've really, really enjoyed watching is the Phoenix Suns. So they're 4-0 in the bubble. And a guy like Devin Booker, who's just really an elite talent, playing in Phoenix, not getting a lot of televised games nationally. Most people don't really see him in the same light as they should, right? People think, yeah, he's really talented. He can score. He had that 70-point game. So people are like, yeah, he's just a scorer. But he's actually way, way more than that. And getting the opportunity to be in a national spotlight and showcase his ability to not just shoot the basketball, but be an all-around great player. He's averaging 28 points a game, shooting 47% from the field, six and a half assists from a two-guard, close to four rebounds a game shooting 40% from three. And so they beat teams like the Clippers, the Mavericks, and the Pacers, who all three of them are really, really good squads. Obviously, we know about the Clippers being a potential championship contender, or they are a championship contender, but potentially winning the championship this year. And if you're the Clippers and you're in a and you're in a game seven, you can't put Paul George as a defender. You can't anymore. Like he 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 can't be the primary defender. First game, now D book. They even double him with Kawhi. Like Paul George can't catch a break. Like he can't. <laughs> and he's such an elite defender. That's what's crazy. Because if you don't think, if you don't look into the context of it, you would think, man, he can't play defense, but he really can. So um, they've been a really fun team to watch. I don't think they're going to get in, but it's been nice to see them play meaningful basketball and, and have Devin Booker playing meaningful, uh, play meaningful minutes. And then another team that I've really enjoyed watching and who I think has surprised me. And I know a lot of people said this team was going to be interesting to to keep their eye on because that because of their change to going to small ball and that's the Houston Rockets. Look, I wanted to see it for myself. I didn't know if this was going to work, but I thought okay, let me just wait and see and then I'll hop on the bandwagon so to say to what everybody's been saying about this squad. And I think they made the right move getting rid of Clint Capella and going small. I think that when they're on, they're going to be one of the toughest teams to beat, but the problem is the way that they are constructed with James Harden and Russell Westbrook is if they're both having off nights shooting the basketball, which Russ is way more prone to do so than James Harden. But Russ can obviously get to the get to the rim really, really well, and so can James. If both those guys are having an off night, they're gonna it's gonna be really tough for them to win. So, but I think they'll get to the second round, and I think that they'll be a really tough out, much tougher than people want to maybe give them credit for. And then the the last team in the West that I've really been really been surprised by has been OKC. And I think a lot of people have been surprised by them all year long. But the fact that they really have, you know, CP3 is a superstar, but he's older. So it's hard for me to really say like, man, he's a bona fide superstar right now. But the way that he's rallied that team with Shy Gilgis Alexander, you have you have Steven Adams, you have uh, Dennis Schroeder, you've got a lot of pieces on that squad that that I really like. And they've been competitive all year. They're probably the surprise team, especially coming out of the West. And uh, I'm really pleased with with what product they've put on the floor. And being the fifth seed in the West with with that squad, I, I really don't see them, of course, making a run at a championship, but they're going to, with alongside the Rockets, they're going to be a tough out. My biggest takeaway during kind of the, the season revamp is 
you can kind of see the game plan from the different teams based upon setting. Like the Lakers, for example, as bad as the Lakers are playing at this point, if you give me LeBron James in any series, I mean, we saw what he did in Cleveland without Kyrie, without Kevin Love, making that competitive against an all-time great Warriors team. You add an AD, you have to think they're going to figure out a way to get 18 points a night, whether it's coming from Kyle Kuzma, J.R. Smith, uh, Chubby Dion Waiters, or anybody else on the squad. For me, the two teams that have I've taken the biggest, um, I think who have surprised me the most and have been the most enjoyable to watch is the Phoenix Sun, of course. Like Devin Mother and Booker playing meaningful basketball for the first time since being at Kentucky is awesome to see. The biggest stat you talked about, which is huge to me, is the six and a half assists. We know the guy can put the the I think uh, the ball in the bucket. Scored 70 points against the Celtics two or three years ago. Youngest player ever to score over 50 points. I mean, the guy's absolutely electric. Knocked down three-point shooter. Can drive. They have to be killing themselves that they didn't take Luka. Like, if you could have had Luka and Devin Booker, like, you're set for the next 15 years. Like, the fact that Phoenix messed that up after they never won with Nash and Amari, you have to be killing yourself. If I'm Devin Booker, I'm out of there as quick as possible. Another team that's really taken advantage of the seeding games is, is Portland, right? Last year, Portland lost in the Western Conference Finals to Golden State, who's always been a really bad matchup for them. When you look at Stephen Curry and Klay Thompson versus Damon CJ, you know, Golden State has a size advantage. They also had a guy named Kevin Durant last year. So just really bad fit for everybody, but especially Portland. But obviously when, you know, players were able to opt out, there was a huge question mark with, hey, what's going to happen with Trevor Ariza, who is their starting small forward? But like you mentioned, not only Carmelo Anthony, but Gary Trent Jr. has really filled that role Man. well. Unbelievable. Because Ariza's always been, you know, a perimeter perimeter defender, but Gary Trent has taken some big shots. Carmelo Anthony's taken some big shots. They're a team that no one wants to see in the eight seed. I mean, they're probably going to take over Memphis for the eight seed. Memphis, I think they're 0-4 during the seeding games. Um they're not looking great. I think they're a team that kind of got hot early. They're kind of, you know riding the the resurgent with John Morant, like leading the way there. But you look at that roster, multiple years away from being competitive. Well, and the loss of Jaron Jackson is huge too. Huge as well, for sure. Rockets, for me, the biggest thing they have to do is Harden and Westbrook have to drive. Like Harden's a great three-point shooter, but he can't can't just ISO and pull up from three. He has to drive because when he drives – it just opens it up for everybody else. You get Austin Rivers, you get P.J. Tucker, who's leading the league in three-pointers. So when you have a guy like P.J. Tucker, who, although he's shorter, he's 6'7", he's great at boxing out, really good fundamentals, and then he can be a corner three-point specialist. Harden driving, Westbrook driving and penetrating, driving in the defense and dishing out is going to be crucial for them. And then the two teams for me that I, I just, I can't see making any type of really significant impact as far as the way they're going to challenge the Lakers or the Clippers or the Rockets um, is going to be the Utah Jazz and the Nuggets. So when I look at Utah, they just need more scores. They, they need 20 points a night from somebody, and, and there's just no one on that roster that can give them that extra 20 points a night. And then when you look at the Nuggets, as nice of a story they are, Michael Porter Jr., they're still a few years away. And so Denver is a team where, unlike Phoenix, they've done such a good job drafting that if they can continue to develop the talent keep the people healthy and get some veteran leadership. They're a team that will be really interesting, you know, in the next two to three years for me, but I I still have the Lakers with even as bad as they've looked, they're still my clear cut favorite to win the championship. 
So moving over to the Eastern Conference, there's the obvious picks like Milwaukee and Toronto. They're both going to be in the Eastern Conference Finals more than likely and budding to represent the East in the Finals. Then you have teams like the Celtics and the Heat who are kind of on that cusp. So I kind of want to talk about those two teams a little bit. So one of the teams I want to talk about is the Celtics. And there's nights where they show up and they look great. Then there's nights where they show up and I'm really not sure what they are, what they're going to be able to do against elite teams. And they obviously have young superstars, right, in the making. You have Jalen Brown and then you also have Jason Tatum who are going to be superstars in this league. They're not quite there yet. You could obviously see that there's still some inconsistencies in the night on the night-to-night performance basis. And then Kemba Walker's obviously a really, really good player. And they're the only team in the NBA this past year that had three players average 20 points or more per game. So they can do it. The thing is, is I just don't think they're old enough and mature enough yet to get over that hump, but they're obviously coming, right? Then you look at a team like Miami, who you and I talked about this previously, and they've really surprised me, not just this year, but in the bubble, okay? So they've been the surprise team in the East all year long. I don't think a lot of people thought they would be very competitive. They might make the playoffs as an eighth seed. And here they are finding themselves as the four seed in the Eastern Conference currently, and a lot of people, of course, didn't see, foresee guys like Tyler Hero, guys like Duncan Robinson, guys like Kendrick Nunn really being super impactful because, of course, they're super young. Tyler Hero is a rookie, and then you have Kendrick Nunn, who's also a rookie. And so I look at both of those guys as, along with Duncan Robinson, and I go, man, you really have a young core here that you're building that's going to be good for a really long time. And the thing that has really surprised me is not, of course, the obvious stuff, which is their ability to make the three, but their defensive ability, I believe, is very overlooked and very underrated. Bam Adebayo, I think, is going to be a potential defensive player of the year in his in, in the future. And the way that they shut down Milwaukee really, it, it didn't surprise me, but it really, it more so impressed me. And down the stretch there, the way that they bodied up Giannis and, you know, you and I've had conversations about Giannis. Obviously he's a great talent, but I still feel like at this stage in his game, he's pretty one dimensional. And the thing that was really surprising was that a guy like Bam Adebayo, who's not overly big, he's six, nine for a center. That's pretty undersized. And then you have Giannis who's six, 11, seven feet, and he bodied him up. And so when I look at the Eastern Conference and what they're going to have to go through, I really strongly feel that this take is not a hot take, but rather it's actually going to happen. And I feel like the Heat are going to make it to the finals, if not for sure to the Eastern Conference finals, barring injury, of course. But you have a guy like Jimmy Butler, Andre Godala, both veterans, savvy, understand what it takes to win, being on the defensive end as the way that Andre Iguodala has been in his career, he's obviously not going to repeat as as Andre Iguodala in Golden State. However, if he can just be a spark off the bench and provide that defensive prowess, this team to me, just the eye test to me has been astronomical in comparison to how I felt prior to the bubble. So love Miami's chances. And we talked about Philadelphia earlier and then the Pacers just don't have enough. They're kind of an intriguing squad. TJ Warren's gone off during this bubble, which is crazy, but they just don't have enough that he is. No, I absolutely love Miami. They kind of remind me of like the Spurs system. When you think of it, you have a guy like Bam who kind of has that Duncan role where they really do a lot through him offensively because early in Duncan's career, they'd actually give him the ball in the low post and kind of play off him. And Bam for his size 
and his position. He's actually a really good ball handler. Like, you'll watch him in games where he'll actually take the ball up in transition, kind of like Blake Griffin does. You got Jimmy Butler, who, although he's not a great shooter, great defender, and more than anything, just lays it on the court every single game. I mean, the guy gives it his absolute all. You have Drogic, who was a really good starting point guard for a long spat of his career, and now he's almost like taking that veteran point guard role, kind of like Tony Parker and Manny Ginobili did on the Spurs, and really just does whatever the team needs to win. And then like you mentioned, and I'm not trying to steal your point, but I just want to reemphasize the fact that they're just so deep. They got Duncan Robinson, they got Tyler Hero, they got Andre Iguodala, Jamison Crowder, Miles Leonard, Derek Jones, Kendrick Nunn, Kelly Olenek. I mean, they're going 10-11 guys deep. But to me, my biggest takeaway, not just from this season, but even watching the playoffs is, I get that Giannis is really good, but I feel like we're way overvaluing how good we think the Bucks team is just because of their regular season wins. It reminds me of Cleveland back specifically in 2009 when, you know, it was his last year in Cleveland. I think it's the year that it, they couldn't get past the Celtics. We ended up going to Miami. But you look at LeBron that season, he's dominating the league, averaging 28-7-7. Giannis this year's averaging, you know, 29-14-6. And then he had, you know, Mo Williams who... You know, Mo Williams was a solid player, but he was so elevated because he had LeBron playing next to him and getting him open shots. And so you have a guy like Mo Williams averaging 17 a game, but after LeBron left, he was a type player. And then you look at a guy like Chris Middleton that, you know, he's, he's averaging 21 points a game, he's a, and he's a good perimeter defender based upon his size and athleticism, but Chris Middleton isn't getting those looks if he's not playing with a guy like Giannis or a guy like James Harden or Russell Westbrook who can drive, create, and get everyone to focus on him. And then now all of a sudden everyone's like, oh, Brooke Lopez is this all-time great defensive center, similar like how everyone was talking about with Berjao. And it's like, no, they're just a really long team and things get funneled into them. So for me, the bugs are really the bucks are really intriguing because they they have probably the best player in the Eastern Conference, but I don't think they're that deep of a team. And I don't think they have nearly the same superstar power as Miami when you look at Bam and Butler and even with Boston. I think Boston's biggest thing is we expect players now to be so good so early. Like this is the first time in their professional career where Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown have had to really actually carry a franchise because last year it was Kyrie's team. Although it probably shouldn't have ran through Kyrie and it would have made a lot more sense to actually give the rock to Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. I think they realize, hey, if we, if we don't give it to Kyrie, he's just not going to be there. He's going to be over on his flat world that he currently believes in. Um, <laughs> but, but from a talent standpoint, those guys are, you know, all world talents and so it's going to be really interesting to me i like i wouldn't be shocked i th- I feel like everyone's saying like there's a lot of people saying the bucks are going to win the championship i don't see it i would be shocked if any team that wasn't in the western conference finals won it like i think it's lakers one clippers two probably rockets three and then i probably put miami four i just i'm just not a huge fan of this bucks team i feel like although i love wa- watching Giannis play until we can develop a three-point shot you almost do what the Dallas Mavericks did against LeBron when they beat him, and you run a 2-3 zone and say, beat us with a jump shot, hit a three, you know, hit a free throw you know, pull-up. And until he can prove that he can do that, I really don't see the Bucks really making a splash you know, past the Eastern Conference Finals. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't... Not only do I not see them winning the title... I just don't even see them getting to the finals. I just don't. I, I don't see where you can make that argument that they that they will. 
So we're going to have a little bit of fun and get into the DC inbox, which you haven't been able to do in the last few weeks. So super exciting to bring this segment back. So we had Noah reach out to us at Noah W. J. Rudy, and he asked us it, what we think about all the teams in college football being given a realistic chance to make the college football playoffs with all of the schedule changes. So if you aren't familiar with the changes to the schedule, so the ACC is going to a 10-conference, one non-conference schedule that begins the week of September 7th through the 12th. Then you have the Big Ten. They're playing a 10-game schedule, so 10-conference, zero non-conference, and they're set to start the week of August 31st. The Big 12 is also playing a 10-game football schedule, non-conference, one non-conference, expected to start mid to late September. The SEC is playing 10, and they're playing 10 non-conference, or sorry, 10 conference, zero non-conference, starting September 26. Pac-12 are playing 10 games as well, 10 conference, zero non-conference, expected to start on September the 26th. And then the American Conference, they're playing 12 games, eight conference, up to four non-conference and that's beginning on September the 19th. So Conference USA, they're to be determined as well as the MAC. And then the Mountain West, they're playing 10 games, eight conference up to two non-conference. And then the last conference, Sun, the Sun Belt, 12 games, eight conference, and up to four non-conference. So obviously we just ran through that whole th- deal for you. I know that was a lot, but hopefully you stuck with us there. We appreciate that. So um, the main conferences we want to look at here really are like the ACC, and the Big 12, the SEC, and the Pac-12, okay, uh, and the Big 10. So to answer Noah's question, I think there's going to be some impact here with not having to play, especially like in the SEC with the non-conference games. And then Notre Dame moved into the ACC. So like a team like Notre Dame, I feel like this impacts them in the most positive sense because they play as an independent. And the ACC, 100%. Is, yeah, the ACC is pretty weak. So, I mean, the only teams that I feel like, of course, are relevant is going to be Clemson. And then I think North Carolina is continuing to build. And I think they're going to have a really good year. I don't think they're, of course, going to be a college playoff team. But when you look at the ACC as a whole, you really you really like your odds, odds with Notre Dame. And I feel like these last two or three years, Notre Dame, Brian Kelly, the head coach there, has really put together and recruited well, uh, recruited really well, and put together a great squad. And so I feel like a team like that, it really does benefit. And then also when you go to, to the SEC, right? So looking at the SEC as arguably the most difficult conference in college football, I think that they're the they're really top heavy, but I don't feel like it's a super deep conference. I think a lot of people just assume, oh, well, it's the SEC, so they're the best. But when you look at when you look at the top, right? So of course you got your Alabamas, you got your Floridas, you got your Georgias, and LSU is going to be interesting to watch. I think they'll still be really good, even though that they lost Joe Brady and, of course, the number one overall pick in the NFL draft in Joe Burrow. Um, I but, think the Brady loss is bigger than the Burrow loss. No, there's no doubt. There's no doubt. So the team in the SEC that I believe benefits the most from this is Georgia. So if you look at their schedule, home, they play Vanderbilt. Oh, man. They got so lucky. Oh, my so goodness. So lucky. Home, they're playing Vanderbilt. If they don't make the playoffs this year, like, you just, you you, you got to make the playoffs this year. Or Jamie Newman falls out of the first round or top 10 draft grade, which is absurd we talked about last week. Um, so they play Vanderbilt, Auburn, Florida, Tennessee at home. Then they play Alabama, Missouri, South Carolina, and Kentucky away. All right, 
So no LSU, no LSU, no Texas A&M. Look, the Florida game is going to be tough, and the Alabama game is going to be tough. Outside of that, I think people give Auburn way more credit than they deserve. I think they're very limited offensively. Bo Nix really didn't Auburn impress me last year. Auburn plays good against Alabama, but that's pretty much it. Like, yeah, they, they, they always play Alabama because Alabama. Right. But besides that, you know. Yeah. So, so you didn't have to play Texas A&M, and when I when I look at when I look at their I mean, the home schedule, the fact that you're playing Auburn and Florida, who are two out of your three toughest games at home, that's to me, with Alabama away, you're probably going to lose that one. So I see Georgia probably losing one game this year. And when I look at Alabama, the thing that's interesting to keep an eye on, for me at least, is that they typically play FCS schools for like the first two to three weeks, right? Or FCS Or before a big game. Like they'll always play an FCS school before LSU or before Auburn, or before Florida, like they always have that bye week, right, where their starters come out at halftime, and their four-string players are still putting up 75 points, yet you're going to tell me two is a top-five prospect in the history of football, but that's a different rant. Um, but it's going to be interesting to see them have to play like a real schedule all season long. Yeah, so I think Alabama is going to be, of course, super competitive. It's going to be interesting to see who they use at quarterback, either being Mac Jones or if they're going to use the young prospect coming out of modern day. And I, I really don't know what route they'll choose to go. They'll probably go with Mac Jones. I think Bryce Young is really enticing. But I, again, who knows what he's going to be at the college level. But I think when you look at Alabama and you look at Georgia, those are going to be two teams to watch, I think, in the SEC. And then I think Florida, man, they really have a solid chance to make a run at the college football playoff. I really like their team. So... Yeah, I know Noah, when he DM'd us, one of the questions he asked was, hey, I'm a Ducks fan. How does this impact the Pac-12? Uh, Pac and for me, I don't think it really does. And this isn't a shot, but normally the Pac-12, like when they're like last year, like Oregon lost to Auburn, right? And so they even with losing to Auburn, if they would have won out, they would have made the playoffs. So the only difference for the Pac-12 now is you just have to win out. So if you're a Pac-12 school, you know, it doesn't hurt you not playing Alabama because like USC wasn't going to beat Alabama. So it doesn't hurt USC not playing Alabama this year. But if USC wins out, I still think they probably make the, the playoffs. I think the biggest thing is for if you look at like a Pac-10 school, sorry, Pac-12 or Big 12, those two, those two, I think, leagues, that team has to almost be undefeated because you know there's going to be an SEC school, one, maybe two, but for sure at least one, even if they have a one loss. So my biggest takeaway from this is the Pac-12 can still make it, the Big 12 can still make it, the ACC can still make it, but you have to go undefeated. To your point, I think it really helps a Clemson to have Notre Dame in there because they played absolutely nobody last year. Ohio State is like the luckiest team in the universe where every single good player in their conference is calling out. You got Rondell Moore from Purdue, Bateman, who, you know, both those guys are probably... Besides Lamar Chase, probably the best two receivers in college football, probably first, second round draft picks, they're calling out. You got Micah Parsons, who he really reminds me a lot of Jalen Smith. Back mm. how like Notre Dame used to use him, where Jalen Smith, before he went to the Cowboys, they kind of used him all over. He was actually more of like an edge press rusher. Obviously, he had the horrible knee injury uh, junior season before he came out. The Cowboys got an absolute steal on him, taking him in the round where he would have been probably a top three pick. And now they've moved into a mid. Uh, a linebacker position where he can just uses athleticism to wreak havoc. Probably, arguably, the best defensive player in college football. You're not playing him. 
And then you're already Ohio State. You recruit better than everybody else. Don't tell me your game with Michigan's a rivalry because for it to be a rivalry, Michigan has to win like every like what once every ten years. And so, yeah, I think Ohio State like has a lock to make the playoffs, and um, it's going to be interesting. Yeah, I, the Pac-12 to to the to Noah's question, the Pac-12 to me. In this season, I feel like it's going to benefit them because you have the SEC, they're just playing each other, right? Where Alabama would pick up two to three extra wins per year playing cupcake teams. So they're all going to have to play each other. And although I don't think the SEC as a whole, as you get deeper into the SEC, is necessarily going to be uber competitive against a school like Alabama. However, when you look at the Pac-12, it's it's really, really weak. You know, you have teams like Oregon at the top, of course. I think USC is going to be really, really good. Utah will be solid. So other than that, I, I, I just, when, you, when you're looking at the schedules, I feel like this gives a team like USC or Oregon a better chance, not because of who they play, but more so because the SEC is basically just playing each other. So they're kind of taking each other out. So like last year, of course, Alabama losing to LSU took them out when otherwise they probably wouldn't have been. But because they're, of course, playing each other, then one of those teams is probably going to get left out of the playoffs. So I feel like you're going to see that on a grander scale this year because the SEC is only playing themselves. But I I really feel if you're an Oregon fan or if you're a USC fan, you're feeling at least fairly confident or more confident than you maybe have felt in recent years about your chances. I think that when you look at even schools like Arizona State, it's like they had a solid year last year, but they're not going to be uber competitive. I know that they beat Oregon last year. That I feel like was a fluke game. Cal is eh. Colorado's eh. Oregon State. Stanford is, to me, they've regressed a lot. UCLA and Chip Kelly's offense with Dorian Thompson-Robinson is fun and interesting. Brian Shaw was like a top five coach, and now I have no idea what he is. But I thought like three or four years. Well, you ago, can be a top five coach when you have arguably the greatest quarterback prospect in history. It's pretty easy to be a top five after, coach. No, but even after him, like I thought they used McCaffrey well. I thought they were always a competitive team because the hard thing yeah. about um, Stanford is like it's hard to recruit because the GPA <laughs> you can't get in to go to that school. <laughs> you have to be an absolute genius, like, and so it's hard to actually get good players to go there and i was like they're always like really competitive in a division like oregon that recruits really well probably because of their uniforms and then you have usc in southern california and so like the fact that they're competitive like i was shocked he didn't get offered the niners job when jim left the first time for michigan um because that was an absolute disaster but then now i'm like i don't even know if he's that good yeah so i i think college football is going to be fun this year it's condensed it's all the games are super meaningful and I feel like if, look, in the ACC, it's going to be Clemson, right? That's a given. In the Big Ten, it's going to be Ohio State. Their schedule's a joke as well. Uh, but when you start looking into the Pac-12 and then the SEC, that's where it gets super interesting. So, I, again, I think if you're an Oregon fan, I, f- I would feel really optimistic going into this year. But the, of course, the only question mark is who's going to play quarterback. You had Justin Herbert the last four years. So, I know there's a few guys on that squad that have a chance to be really good, but it's still going to be his first year. So again, going to be a fun season to watch. Going to be fun to see these guys hash it out. But I truly believe the big name brands will pretty much reign supreme, but there might be somebody that squeaks in maybe from the Pac-12 if they go undefeated like a USC or Oregon that might have a chance to get into the playoff. But otherwise, 
probably going to see teams like Alabama, Ohio State, Clemson, and then, you know, like I said, maybe a wild card from the Pac-12. But that's just our prediction on that. But that's going to wrap things up for episode 26 of the DNC podcast. Again, thank you for tuning in each and every week. Remember to rate, review, subscribe, share this podcast with your family and friends. We greatly appreciate that and appreciate your support. And follow us on our social media platforms on Instagram and Twitter at Dustin and Cole Podcast. And go ahead and drop in our DMs. Go ahead and drop some questions, topics you would like us to cover on the show. And we will see you guys Monday. Have a great weekend. Thank you.